Hello everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp and today here in sunny Las Vegas I'm sitting down with one of the notable angels of Silicon Valley, Will Bunker. And uh, Will has an amazing story that uh, hopefully we'll get into the nitty gritty of. Um, but as always we like to start off with the, the very beginnings of, of, of life and, and maybe um, you alluded to there being an origin uh, around tractors. Where, yes. Where, what happened there? So I grew up on a uh, 3,000 acre farm down in the Mississippi Delta and my summers consisted of you know 100 to 110 hours a week sitting on a tractor driving back and forth in you know large fields uh, you know all week long and you know for me it provided a tremendous anchor of you know this is what I had to look forward to if I don't get off my ass and do something with it and so my whole life has been a lot more interesting than driving that tractor. And so every time I, you know, I get tired or, you know, resentful of the amount of work I have to do, I go, well, at least I'm not there going back and forth in the Delta sun uh, making cotton. So what was the first step you took then? So like you must have had a point in time when you were like, I, I want to move past this. What was the first thing you did? Uh, the first thing I did was uh, I I was a National Merit Finalist, and the reason I was a National Merit Finalist was I took all the vocabulary words that had ever been on the, the test and made flashcards out of them, and as I drove back and forth in the field, I memorized all the vocabulary, and so I had, I think, either a perfect score or close to a perfect score, which got me a uh, really good scholarship to an a engineering school that I wanted to go to. And what did you study there? Uh, industrial engineering, which was truly uh, unfortunate because Toward my senior year, I found out that the only thing I hated worse than driving a tractor was working in a factory. And so I went and worked in this pickle factory in Greenville, Mississippi, and it was one of the more miserable summers I've ever spent in my life. And I just went, oh my God, I spent four years learning to do something that I hate. I've got to find another another profession. So what was that? Uh, I went. From uh, school, I went to work for one of the Hunt brothers in Dallas, Texas. Uh, their father discovered the uh, East Texas oil field yeah. and was one of the richest guys in the world uh, during the 60s. And they uh, were looking at uh, natural resource investment projects in Russia. So they sent me to Moscow for two years. Uh, I spent, I've probably been to more cities in Russia than I've been to in the United States. And then, uh, uh, I, t I spent two years talking them out of investing in Russia because it was just such a difficult climate and required a lot, it was a lot of corruption and, and the guy I worked for didn't want to play that game and it was really impossible to do business in 92, 93. I'm sure it's different now or maybe not. Um, so as a reward, he bought a gold mine in Nicaragua and I went down there for a year and ran that. So we've gone from tractor to pickle farm to mine in Latin America. Okay, so this is getting better and better. It's like a James Bond movie. Okay, it, so what happened next? It felt that way. So every every two weeks I would have to get uh, $250,000 worth of bullion, semi-refined. I mean, it was heavy. So it weighed about 200 pounds and I would have to get that and drag it onto a commercial airline. Uh, and when you would set it down, the plane would shake. Uh, we would fly to Miami, I would hand it off to the Brinks guys. I would come back and I would get out a box of paper money that was like $90,000. You had to sleep with it under your bed because the plane would leave at five in the morning. And so then I'd get up in the morning, drive the money over to the airport and they would fly out there and make payroll. And what I realized is what was happening to me is that 
my tolerance for risk was massively increased such that you know by the time I went to start an internet company in Dallas I thought well at least nobody's gonna shoot me you know I'm not hauling <laughs> gold around like this seems so much safer than the stuff I was doing that it just really didn't it, it felt like I wasn't taking a risk at all <laughs> well there's one way of, of entering into the startup world just it's better than getting shot right yeah. okay so so then, so was it after that? Did, is that when you moved to Dallas? To well, what I would do is I would fly into Miami. I would get a Novell networking certification book. I would go back to the jungle. We didn't have any Novell networking equipment, and I just memorized the book. And I would fly back, take the test, and when I passed them all, and I knew I could get a job doing something else, I quit and went to Dallas. You're good at memorizing. That's, yes. That's well, the moral I mean. Story. It's, uh, you know, we live in a knowledge economy, and I thought, well, okay, if I'm good at learning stuff, then hell, this is the right thing to do with my life. So what was that first job then, that, after you passed this new test? Um, so I went and I took care of uh, an insurance company's Novell Network, and I was an office manager for a guy that was building, it was actually a product that would insert into the brain and measure neurons firing in uh, test animals. And so he was mapping out how the brain worked at a neuron level. But what it gave me was a lot of time. And so, you know, my day job was 45 hours a week, and then the rest of it I spent working on an internet startup, and that's where uh, Dave Kennedy and I built uh, the dating site. And and was, was that, because I mean, to some extent, you say, and then we built a dating site, but that, that's not like the most obvious well, so what we did is Dave and I knew that we wanted to do an internet business. Yeah. We were both convinced that it was the future. This was 94. Yeah. Um, we looked and looked and looked and looked. And then one thing we noticed a fact, which was that AOL, which would have been the biggest, and we'll put quotes around internet, but the biggest internet company of the time, uh, they char charged by the hour. And we were looking in their SEC report and 50% of their revenue came from chat and when you went into the chat rooms everyone was trying to pick somebody up and we said if 50% of the largest company's revenue comes from uh, the dating drive then let's just do that on the internet like that's gonna be big and that was the genesis for the idea so you went out and coded it yourself or did you bring somebody in house we or? did I mean so you got to think at that time it was 95 the cost of hiring someone else to do this, it'd be a million dollars to build a website back then. I mean, yeah. people would have to do an A round just to build the product. Wow. Uh, so we, A, didn't have any money. Well, we had a whopping $2,000 that we were willing to commit to this risky enterprise. And uh, we didn't know how to code. And so we just said, well, we'll just put up uh, HTML. How hard could that be? And uh, we want to see how much advertising we have to do to get one profile. And so we put up a bunch of ads, uh, which was hard to do back then because no one even knew what ads were. So we'd have to call people and talk, hey, there's this thing called a banner and we'll pay you if you put it up on your website. And uh, lo and behold, uh, one in 20 people would put their profile in. Now at that time, they would fill out the form and they would hit the button and it was actually, it would pull up their email program and just mail it to us and then we would, hand paste that back into the website and upload it. And about three weeks into it, uh, so many people were doing it that we were like, holy shit, this isn't gonna scale. Like, this is horrible. Uh, we're gonna have to program this. And we're like, who 
who's going to program it? And so we drew straws and I lost. And so my first job in my evenings and weekends was to learn enough coding to actually be able to connect the form to the database, which was really hard to do back then. Now it's a cinch, but it was terribly difficult. Wow. And what, what did you code it in, just out of curiosity? Um, the only thing that would talk to a database when we started was uh, this product called Navisoft, which AOL bought, and it used uh, this weird database that didn't make it. And so for the first year until Microsoft came out with IIS and yeah. would talk to SQL Server, uh, yeah, Microsoft SQL Server, um, we used this kind of weird product that, that was TCL, which is... I mean, it's, I'm sure it's a fantastic language. It was horrible to do a website in because you, the only way you could debug it was to do print statements to the screen. And so I would spend all my time printing crap out, going to the website, looking at what printed out, and just trying to figure out like what I was doing wrong. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds like hell. It was. So, But the first 18 months, we both kept our day job. And uh, the guy that I worked for at the insurance company put in $90,000 and that we use that to get enough traffic to build up our database of profiles. And uh, we quit when we reached 15K a month in revenue. Like we quit our day job, went on it full time, 18 wow. months in. 18 months. I mean, that's, that's kind of like what I think a lot of people are probably experiencing, uh, but a lot shorter now, I guess. You, you would, what, what would you say now the typical sort of jump from full-time to a project side project is these days how much has that decreased it's got to decreased a lot because most of the things that were difficult aren't there anymore like it's easy to deploy your software to the cloud it's easy to connect it to the database the tools have been well thought out I mean so the path I mean for instance uh, a good friend of mine Hitesh and I uh, did a second project four years ago and it was in a completely it was in flash we didn't know flash it took three weeks so for, for founders out there, or potential founders out there that are considering starting something in the same role you are in, it's, it's as easy as potentially starting something within an organization and then potentially even as soon as three weeks. Yeah, I mean, you, what I learned on the farm is that you have a lot more time than you think you do. Yeah. And so I'm just very disciplined about it. It's like, okay, here's what I do during work. I've got one hour for lunch. I'm going to spend that working on my startup. I've got, you know... Uh, 5.30 to 6.30 with my family, and then I'm going to work till, you know, whatever. And just extremely disciplined because I've heard the saying, most people overestimate what they can do in the short run and underestimate what you can do in the long run if you keep doing it. It's true. It's true. And so what happened after you, you successfully coded it? Now, so now you started it scaling a little bit, and then you, you, you properly had, what was the name of it? It was One and Only. One and Only. And so... What, what point did one and only, and you know, I know what's coming next in the narrative, but like, what, what, was, what, what was your sort of inner, inner thoughts regarding scaling this with as much time as you were putting into it and going full time and yet not having the funds yet? So maybe that, well, that process Well, we only ever raised the $90,000. That was it? That was it. Wow. We cash flowed it 30% uh, growth a month for five years up to 14 million run rate with like a 50% net profit margin and then sold it for 50 million. On 90K? On 90K. But wow. that was, you know, so I'm an industrial engineer uh, and so it's all about efficiency. Yeah. And my partner was an accountant. And so every time, you know, we would be Just faced... Just the right guys to start a dating network. So yeah. romantic. Yeah, yeah so, well, so romantic. romantic. It, was, it was horrible. <laughs> Everyone that started it was married. Um, <laughs> 
the uh, and so uh, you know we, we would just go given that we don't know how to raise money and this is Dallas right this is Dallas in the 90s I would tell people they go hey what are you working on and I'd say oh, I'm doing online dating they would physically back up from me visibly like before they could catch themselves uh, and so raising money on that idea was just not gonna happen and so we just said uh, every time we we would get into a corner we would just sit down and we had a motto we put it up on the board most money least work and we would just sit there and try to come up with like what can we do this week so that we're making more money by the end of the week than we were at the beginning of the week like there was one day I'll never forget it the most money I ever made or biggest jump in revenue I ever had in one day uh, Dave and I were sitting there I think we were at about ten thousand dollars a day in revenue and he looked at me and he goes who told us that $9.99 was the right amount to charge and I looked at him and I said I think we just made that up like I don't know where that came from he goes well what if we just doubled our price what would happen and so we, we plugged up the a B test and in one day our revenue went up uh, 95% we only lost 5% buy rate by doubling the price and so we went from 10,000 to $19,000 a day in like one day it was awesome. And then the next day we were like, let's do it again. Well, we tested, we definitely did test the other prices. We, we figured out where to stop at, yeah. So what, what, I mean, this is way before like the days of A-B testing and, and tools that were, uh, that were like really efficient to do that. What, 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 what did you use? We built it all from scratch and we had to, I mean, when you have that little amount of capital, we tracked every nickel we spent on uh, uh, advertising all the way down to the total lifetime value of the customer. And, and then we built, because I got, we would get in these long debates around, should we do this? Should we do the button color this size, the that size? And, and finally, I was just like, this is making me nuts. And so I built uh, an A-B testing framework and we just went and A-B tested. Like we would no longer debate it, we would just run a test. And so for, for the pricing, I mean, you see a lot of startups now trying to determine pricing and some of it is referenceable by what competitors are doing. Yep. You know, like I, I, I was listening to Spotify uh, at a session uh, not too long ago where they were talking about not just the reference point of other music download services, but the fact that CDs created such a, sure. a, a such a mind uh, share of people's concept, concept of what music should cost. Right. And so they are fighting against sort of perception rather than your absolute flexibility to play with this stuff. And with online dating, being that you were one of the very first, I mean, how did you go about thinking that? Was it entirely A-B tested or did you take some hypotheses about max and mins and uh, We had no idea. So Yahoo, which was the largest site at the time, they had free personals. Yeah. So imagine trying to charge when Yahoo's giving it away for free. But personals is a very interesting product. The inventory is not uniform. And so I would get these long emails, uh, dear sir, I cannot believe you have the guts to charge, Yahoo is free, and I mean, it would be like a page and a half of crap. And I'd usually get them at like one o'clock at night. I'd be up there coding, get this email telling me that I'm a schmuck for trying to make a living. And so I would always just hit reply and go, dear sir, if the girl you wanted to go out with was on Yahoo, we wouldn't be having this conversation, would we? And I would hit reply, and then inevitably they would buy within the next 24 hours. And so it was just kind of a weird product because you couldn't, it's not an apple to apple comparison, but there is 
some level of price uh, sensitivity. It yeah. just is was fairly uh, inelastic at the lower end. Yeah. Wow. So what what happened after that? So you, you clearly you're starting to becoming a, a bit of a runaway hit, and and you were you had enough traffic you could play with these things. So that's a great position for right. a startup to be in. And then the acquisition. Can you tell us a little bit about what what happened there and and how that evolved into the next phase of things? So. Uh, what happened, and, and some people know the story, uh, not everyone does. The original match raised $10 million. Uh, they were trying to do a broad consumer branding play. And at that time, the internet was so small that your conversion was just too low on that. And so, also, they had a free two-week trial, which cost you 50% of your revenue. I know because we tested it. Mm. And so, they could have doubled their revenue if they'd just gotten rid of that two-week free trial. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, they ran out of money, and their VC pulled the plug on them, uh, fired the founding team, and sold them for $16 million. So I think the guy, uh, uh, Gary Kremen, has publicly stated, I think he made about $40,000 for match. Mm. So then they went into kind of a decline where they lost employees and they got sold again. So by the time uh, uh, IAC, it was Ticketmaster City Search back then, but it's now IAC, started looking to buy cash flow properties uh, they picked up Match, what was left of it. Then they picked us up, uh, and we were at like 14 million and growing like this, and they were at seven and declining. And so we ported over their UI and their database and then just ran it on our business, you know, mixed the profiles together and then ran it on our platform in Dallas. And the rest is history. Yeah, so far. Well, although it's funny, you know, even Tinder, I'll see people, well, what about Tinder? And I'm like, IAC owns 80% of Tinder, it is Match.com. I said, you know, now, there's that bullshit story about those kids and how they founded it. I said, but look who just got fired and who owns all the stock. It's their company. Wow. So, what about players like eHarmony? To some extent, did you ever... So, eHarmony came in uh, and pitched the Match guys, uh, I guess it was about 2000, 2001. And it was just a very difference between cultures. I mean, you've got the red states, which are religion and values driven. You want to explain that for the Europeans, red states being? Uh, the, the states that typically vote uh, Republican. They're conservative, uh, uh, more religious in the United States. And then you've got uh, the East Coast and the West Coast, which tends to vote more democratic, more liberal. Yeah. And uh, the match guys were coast, they were, they were East and West Coast guys. And so uh, the um, eHarmony guy comes in and he has this concept of values and it's code word for religion and date people that have the same values as you, which hits a big segment of the population. They didn't get it, they threw him out of the building and now he's their biggest competitor. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's it's one of those things where you're like, was that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't know, because they've lost a big chunk of the market. I mean, I think they would have liked to have had both, but they're, at that time, I don't think they could conceive how much of the population that would appeal to. Yeah. So, at what point did you, did you step out? So, Barry Diller had this really weird rule that I had a choice. I could either take liquid stock, and I would have to leave, or... I could take payment in a form that I couldn't get to and I could keep my job. Okay. That took about two seconds to figure out which way I was going to go. Okay. Because 
And I mean, you know, we had negotiated, one of the things, we didn't get a bigger price because we were profitable, but we were able to negotiate liquidity. Yeah. And so we also put a collar on that liquidity. So by the time their stock was $32 when they bought us, uh, and by the time uh, we got our last tranche of stock, it was one nickel above the collar at uh, $10.05. Yeah. And they were furious that they had to spend that much stock to buy us. But, you know, and they had laughed at us when we did that and they made us have a collar on the upside, which I didn't care about. I was just like, look, I just want what you promised me. We had seen, so Match had been bought by Sendent a year earlier. And Sendent stock had gone from $85 to a dollar because of an accounting scandal. And Dave and I just went, how would we feel if that happened to us? And so when we negotiated our deal, we were thinking about what had happened to Sendent, and we put that collar on it, and we went right into the decline. And it, it saved, I mean, it probably saved 50% of the value of the transaction. Wow. Wow. And so then you moved past that. And, yep. They, and, and, they, then, and then what did you do? You're, so, you're, now, you know, you're now a success story in, in, in a way, and, and you, know, you left the, the tractor and the mines and all that behind you. And, and now you were in effect w without a job. Like you, 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 yes. You made yourself free in one way, but another way you probably missed some of that. Uh, it is. I mean, it, you definitely uh, uh, lose out on your sense of identity and purpose, and it's tough. I mean, you see a lot of people struggle when they uh, when they retire, or when they sell their company. Um, I, I I had reached a point to where uh, I had a family. You know, I had uh, two children at that point. And um, I just wanted to take some time and like make sure that I wasn't just going to the next thing to go to the next thing. Yeah. Uh, there for a while I grew 4% of the U.S. catfish supply, little known fact. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I eventually though helped my brother and sister start a security scanning company that they successfully sold in December. Uh, it took a long time, it was like 14 years, but again we only put in 100K and they sold it for a really good price, so we're very happy. Uh, and then I moved out to the Valley eight years ago and have, have finally reached the point the last two years to where I've now started focusing on just helping other people. Because if I do a startup myself, it takes four years to fail or succeed. I can only do one at a time, and I've only got maybe 20 to 25 years left in me. And so I felt like the only way to really get better leverage was to start helping more than one person at a time build their business. And so what was the, the next stage? Did you did you say, well, I'm gonna do this by myself? Or that's when you met up with the, the, the various other people that you met in the Valley. How did you move into sort of the SV model? So uh, it started with, uh, I, I wanna understand how angel investing works. I wanna understand how, what are the, what does the math tell you you should do about investing at this stage? Yeah. And if you look at the, the data around it, it's there's a big power law of returns, which means that uh, you know for every 100 companies, you know two or three are gonna do phenomenal compared to all the others. Doesn't mean that everything's gonna do bad, but it does mean that it's outsized returns yeah. for a small number, and so you need to be in a lot of deals. And I started thinking about what that meant, and I said, wow, if I'm gonna to have to put, let's say 25K or, or 50K a deal into 100 deals, my wife is gonna beat my head in and leave me for dead on the side of the road if I tell her I'm, that's what I'm gonna do with all of her money. And so 
that's what led me to, well, I'm going to have to either join a pool of money or create a pool of money in order to be able to do it correctly. And how, how many people were involved in that original pool? Uh, there were two other GPs, and we focused on raising money from people that have real businesses outside of the valley mm -hmm. so that there was a little bit more of a network effect mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, like, we've got one LP that owns uh, the Argentinian telephone company. Okay. We've got another LP that owns the Mexico version of Sears. So these are great things because when I see an investment in that area, well, there's a customer and due diligence all in the same uh, go round. All in one thing. And so now, um, maybe just for people to know what you're interested in, like what, what do you look for in a, in a company, just in general? Like what's the, the, the attributes that you find attractive? So my biggest thing that I look for and the expertise I've tried to develop is in marketing. So I've realized like I don't want to specialize in a specific vertical and know it really well because it's kind of dull and usually there's only one or two things that will happen every couple of years. And so I just said, well, what part of this process was the most fun for me? Well, the most fun was after we had product market fit growing, you know, $5,000 a month, $10,000, you know, all just like shooting up that thing was really fun and learning all the distribution and the sales. And so I've put together a group of people and uh, one of them's GrowthX, uh, where I found people that are experts at growing companies and getting them from like 10,000. We had one that was at $30,000 a month in August. They did 1.3 million last month and they're growing 70% a month. And it's all analog sales, not digital marketing, but analog marketing, which I find fascinating because so few companies can do it. Like it's really hard to figure that out. Yeah. And so I just I've, I'm enjoying learning those kind of techniques and then sharing them with companies where that's a fit. And so I just find companies that if I think I can 10x them or someone I know can 10x them, then I want to invest in them. Yeah. Okay, well, we usually like to wrap things up with an opportunity for you to shamelessly plug something okay. that you're passionate about. Could be fishing, could be could be anything, uh, charity. Um, any thoughts? Well, uh, I guess the biggest thing that I'm passionate about, uh, it's funny, I I read a book that, that uh, really shook me up last weekend, and it's called Chasing the Scream, and it's the first and last days of the war on drugs. And I don't know, I've just, I've begun thinking through like, what is our policy? Well, I know Europe's very different, although globally, I think everyone's kind of following the same policies. And it's, I've just started doing research around like, are we doing the right thing? And are there other approaches? Like I think Portugal's got a different approach. Yeah. Uh, Switzerland has a different approach. And so I'm just starting to get passionate about if one believed that there were a better policy, how do you change policy? How do you change the U.S. policy on it? How would you change California's policy on it? So, you know, anyone out there that has experience with that or has been through that, I'm just interested in learning about it because I just think that there's a lot to be done there. How can they get in touch with you? Uh, TheWillBunker at gmail.com. Very humble. TheWillBunker at <laughs> gmail.com. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter at, uh, I think it's at WBunker. Cool. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Will. And uh, until next time, guys. Awesome.